Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like-minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human-centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. And so from a very young age, I grew up with this understanding of injustice and what it is to be a vulnerable person who isn't safe in the place that most other people get to feel safe at home or within their country. And so growing up in the safe environment of New Zealand, you know, we grew up with all of these stories of of what it was like to have a government or a regime that didn't want you there and was going to go to great lengths to make you leave or, you know, or whatever it might be. Hello and welcome to This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a designer, educator and the host of This Is 8CD based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. In this episode, I caught up with Roya Azadi, Strategic Director at Paper Giant, a design consultancy based in Melbourne, Australia. Now, I follow a few places on my personal social media accounts and really, really respect the work that the folks at Paper Giant do and was really excited when I saw a project before Christmas that they did with the Supreme Court in Victoria around accessing justice. We chat about this project in detail and how Roya and the fellow team members built trust whilst working there, working alongside other consultancies and other practitioners within government and how they remained focused on the analogue as opposed to the traction for digital and also what Roya brought to the project themselves through their own story. It's a really great conversation and I know you're going to really enjoy listening to Roya. If you like what we're doing at This Is Hate City, you can really help us out by leaving a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It should only take a couple of minutes and it really helps the findability out for other new listeners. Or you can go one better by becoming a patron. You can get an ad-free stream of the podcast for as little as €1.66 per month. You can get a shout-out as thanks. There's other plans there on thisishcd.com. Literally all the money goes towards editing, hosting and maintaining the website, which is a repository for human-centered design goodness. I really appreciate it, folks. But let's jump straight into this episode. Roya Azadi, how is it going? How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm not so bad. Um, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. But maybe we'll start off and we'll talk a little bit more um, about who you are, what you do and where you're from. Where do I start? Um, So I'm Roya. Um, I'm currently working as a strategy director at Paper Giant, which is really great. I've been here since 2020. Um, Before this, I was at World Vision trying to figure out how to make... um, child sponsorship work a bit better um, and have done a whole raft of different things before that. Um, So I won't get into those details, otherwise we'll be sitting here forever. Um, In terms of where I'm from, I'm from New Zealand originally, or actually I'm Iranian, um, but raised in New Zealand. And then I moved to Australia in 2005 to study law. Um, And I've come and gone a few times. I've lived in New York, I've lived in London, um, and most recently I also lived in Byron, the, the infamous Byron Bay, um, but I've always yeah. come back to Melbourne. So great to be back here while, you know, everything's getting back to normal and feeling Absolutely. pretty um, 2019-esque. Yeah, 
for anyone who doesn't listen or hasn't really heard of Paper Giant, they're um, a fantastic human-centered service design design consultancy that's relatively boutique, is my understanding, but they're awesome. And a lot of the, the, the work that comes out of Paper Giant, I follow a couple of agencies around the world and Paper Giant is one of them, so I hold them in the highest regard. Yeah, I guess... Um... I'm really flattered, first of all, that you picked us to be one of the one of the people that you follow. That's really cool. Um, so the purpose is is pretty simple, or it's you know it's it's easy to say, but more difficult to do. Is that we're all about trying mm. to make better products, better services, and better policies. Um, mm. And what we mean by better is try to improve those things to make them be more just, more equitable, or more sustainable. Yeah. Um, so that leads us to doing lots of really interesting work for all the different levels of government. Um, we work with private organizations that have big impact. We sort of work with a lot of tech companies trying to figure out how, you know, they have such, such huge um, impacts. We try to help them make sure that their their products and services are being done the best that they can. Um, and I tend to work on a lot of the justice related projects. Yeah. So I've been really lucky to work with a lot of um community legal centers um a really cool project called the police accountability project um and most recently worked on a really cool project with people with lived experience of being reincarcerated to figure out how we can help break the cycle of reincarceration oh man what a project that's (laughs) i like we were going to be talking about another project but if we have time i'd love to go back to that one um yeah it's super cool you, you snuck that one under the carpet there and kind of pulled it out in the last minute in this episode. Not a fan of that kind of stuff. But anyway, I want to come back to that one. But the project that really caught my eye, um, it was, I'm trying to you know look back at my notes here. It was pre, pre-Christmas because I remember I was literally um, checked out for Christmas. It was around mid-December. And the title of it was a user experience strategy to improve access to justice at the Supreme Court. And I'm like, bing, right up my street, okay? Because a lot of the stuff that I would call um, kind of a sea change in my life was when I worked in government, uh, especially in Australia, and worked in the justice system. And I could really see what that looked like. Now, one of the questions um, that I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about is the perspective that you mentioned that you were born in uh, Iran. You've lived in New Zealand and you migrated to Australia, okay? What perspective and what value do you place on um, those different lenses uh, that you're able to bring to your to your work as a human-centered designer or a strategic designer, whatever you want to call it? Um, how, how, how do you think that has actually benefited you in your in your career or has yeah, it? Yeah, sorry, I'll have to... I'll have to make one correction, which is that I was born in New Zealand. Mm. So my parents had just immigrated. Okay. Um, so it's ha- I think it's had a really big impact. I, people can have different stories, but I think end up in the same place I have, which is um, as a third culture kid, as a, you know, as a member of a diaspora, um, not just my own, but also, you know, I grew up in a really Polynesian um you know, uh, community in South Auckland. And so they were they were also part of a diaspora that I got to come in touch with a lot. Um, I was also part of a religious community, the Baha'i faith, for those who are familiar. Um, yeah. And so all of those things, I think, um, meant that I was coming from a very, very young age. I was I was coming across lots of different kinds of people who were different to me. They 
came from different cultures. They came from um, different classes. They came from all you know walks of life. Um, and so I have often felt quite comfortable in a range of situations. Um, and mm. I think one of my one of my sort of special skills, um, you know, hopefully it's not that unique, um, mm. is that I think I can kind of sit down with anybody um, and find common ground, something to laugh about, something to connect over. And I think that that's always been something that I found very easy because of growing up in this very, very um, diverse community. Hmm. So if you look at someone who's localized and is born and raised in a specific place, um, do you think some of the work that you do, um, is it better to have that perspective that you're talking about there versus the localized person? So I know people who are born and bred and, and raised and they've lived in Australia. Um, and what I used to often hear when I would enter the conversation, sometimes midway through a project, was you give a different set of uh, perspectives and um, what it looks like from the outsider. Um, can you speak to any lived experience in yourself, um, maybe your friends, family, whatever it was, that may um, that, that actually have kind of fueled the fire for wanting to, to see change? Because I know you studied law. How far back does the, the change maker in you, Roya, go? Um, are you okay to talk about that? Because I know it's a, it's a pretty personal question. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, the the change maker that's in me, that's a really um, interesting way of putting it. It's really ingrained in the fact that my parents um, are part of this religious minority that was very heavily persecuted. Um, mm. A lot of, a lot of suffering um, in quite sort of real and tangible ways happened by my immediate family, my parents included, not to mention the the wider um, community that they're a part of, you know, aunties and uncles, parents of friends, all this kind of stuff. And I think um, we're very shaped by the stories that we grow up with and the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Um, and one of the stories that was very real for me was um, why our family had to leave Iran and mm. why all of our friends um, parents also had to immigrate and why it was to come to be that we couldn't go back to visit and all this kind of stuff. And so from a very young age, I grew up with this um, understanding of um, of injustice and um, what it is to be a vulnerable person who, you know, is, is, isn't safe in the place that most other people get to feel safe um, at home or within their country. Um, mm. And so growing up in the safe environment of New Zealand, um, you know, we grew up with all of these stories of, of what it was like to have a government or a regime that didn't want you there and was going to go to great lengths um, to make you leave or, you know, or whatever yeah. it might be. And so I think growing up with all those stories and really having it be um, not just something that I heard, but something that we lived every day um, was really impactful for making choices about what I was to go on to do. And I know it's the same for a lot of my peer group as well, who, who grew up in that environment. You'll find a lot of people who in the different careers that they've chosen, a lot of members of that Baha'i community mm. who um, 
you know, want to help and they've, ta- and they've taken um, careers and, and they followed pathways that allow them to do that. And I know mm. that that's not unique to the particular community that I grew up in. There's lots mm. and lots and lots of other communities that also um, grew up, you know, with, with these stories that make you go, hey, you know, I can, I can help. I can do something to make things a bit better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a story that keeps on coming back up on the podcast and even on other podcasts that I listen to, second generation people moving to another place and wanting to better the world. You know, they they enter this stage of their life where they're like, you know, I'm not satisfied to to work for an organization that is contributing to the, the destruction of the planet or society or all these bits that hold together the fabric of society. So it's really refreshing to to hear that again, like from from you, from your perspective. Just to to follow up, what you're talking about there is the revolution in '79 in uh, Iran, isn't it? Like the the Pahlavi um, uh, regime, is that right? They were the dynasty, the monarchy dynasty, yeah. that was ousted in '79, and then the Islamic regime came in. Okay, yeah. So. You you studied law, okay. I've mentioned that in uh, in a fleeting piece there beforehand. Um, what was your interest when you entered the the law profession? What were you hoping to achieve by? And that's not being condescending or patronising. <laughs> but what were you, what were your, what were your dreams when you set out to study law? In in choosing law in the first place, yeah, jump straight into well, design. It's yeah, a great. Don't that. It's a great question, Jerry. So you know, if anybody who's listening to the podcast is um. Um, is you know maybe Middle Eastern or from somewhere whose culture is kind of similar to that they might have a similar they might have received a similar instruction when they were young which is that you can study um, law medicine engineering dentistry or anything else as long as you get your PhD Um, and that is very very ingrained in you from a young age when you go what what am I going to be when I grow up oh you know somebody's going to go study history and your parents go dentistry is good law is good being a doctor is very good you should pick one of those ones um so I think um you know I think on on the one hand there is that parental pressure there was a lot of parental pressure um Mm -hmm. which is really really understandable they give up so much to come to these places where everything is suddenly possible things that were you know just dreams in the country that they came from. Um, so, you know, I really, really understand that. And then add to that, you know, wanting your children to to be the person or the character who might have actually helped you, um, yeah. you know, when you had been in that situation when you were younger. So mm-hmm. I think a little bit of wanting to be a good Iranian daughter and a little bit of, you know, wanting to make that change. Um, and I thought that if you want to more accessible Mm -hmm. that law was a good thing to go to study um what (laughs) what i didn't know you know law is not um law is a lot of things parts of it are about justice a lot of it is actually just part part of the paperwork machinery that makes the world (laughs) run around um and so there are parts of it that were really really amazing um, and there yeah. was a lot of it that was super boring and really not know, for me. Yeah. Um, so remember, yeah, it was a, it was definitely a challenge. I remember in in um, hopefully I'm not speaking out of line here, but in ODPP in Sydney, uh, I was doing an evaluation for um, Lloyd Bob, 
uh, who was the head of TPP at the time. But I remember I was going in every day for a couple of weeks and I'd meet the same person at the same time at the same photocopier and they would stand there from nine o'clock to two o'clock. And after a couple of days, I went over and I go, what are you doing? Like, like you're here all the time photographing. I'm just getting ready for a court case. And I'm like, what? They were just duplicating pages and they were a lawyer. (laughs) And I was like, this cannot be the best use of your time. Like there's a backlog in the courts and you are here photocopying. Yeah. It's a, it's a really tricky one. I think, um, considering, exactly that story that you just told the other, you know, or like, why does it take so hard to make, you know, why is it so uh, complicated to make, you know, laws, you know, actually, um, you know, change to, to be better or or whatever it is. And I think um, it is good that all of those things are complicated and slow when legislation happens really quickly. All of these things, you know, are signs that you're not really operating in a proper democracy and people can take advantage of that. So as much mm-hmm. as it's really crazy to see people walking around with suitcases full of paper and um and see legislation mm-hmm. just takes so long to change. It is some of it is also for our protection. So yeah. <laughs> it's not all bad. In in, in the world of uh, of um you know second generation or in your case it's probably third generation. Um when you choose to become a lawyer and you ultimately move out into another profession, there must be some sort of safeguarding around your own mental health, how, how you can protect yourself from the scrutiny of others. Okay. You don't have to answer this question, by the way, but the imposter syndrome is something that I see in second and third generation people is, is very real. Is that something that you have yourself? Is that something you're happy to talk about as well? You know, the whole kind of the second guessing, like, you know, am I good enough to do this kind of work? And am I, what am I bringing to this? Is Am yeah. I speaking out of line here? Or is that something that you've encountered yourself? No, in your career? Yeah, I think it's a really important topic, particularly for this area that we work in, because I think the story is a bit different in Europe, but in Australia, um, you could only really study it quite recently. So the vast yeah. majority of people who are working in this area, they study completely different things. And I think mm-hmm. um, the irony yeah. is that we are in, we work in an industry that is spending a lot of time trying to convince everybody that lived yeah. experience is just as important as professional or academic experience or whatever it is, which is why we want to design the thing with the end user rather than locking people right. in a room and 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 getting them to it. And yet I think when it comes to ourselves, we go, oh, if I don't have a master's degree in the design futures program or whatever, yeah. am I even can I even call myself a designer, whatever it is. Um yeah. which is <laughs> you know, it's, we're doing to ourselves the exact thing that we're trying to convince everybody else you know, that, that it's not, that it's not a real thing. Um, So I think there's a lot of learning to trust that our own lived experience of doing this work is okay. You don't need to have a master's degree. You don't need to have a PhD. Um, You need to have certain skills, like certain competencies and that kind of stuff to, to be able to do this work well. Um, But there's a whole range of people that can do it no matter what background you came from. And we, at Paper Giant, we love hiring people that come from 
who've taken an unusual pathway to get here because they bring yeah. something new and our whole world is about knowing all the rules that you can break them so you can do it differently and and yeah. actually bring that creativity into into designing things to be better absolutely i mean if everyone goes through the same conveyor belt you know we end up with a very vanilla looking world and we need to make sure that we're accommodating and including everyone in the conversation as as much as we we possibly can um and many of the best designers exactly. that i that i know um never studied design they bring all these different perspectives into it i was speaking to oliver vidlik who's um he owns contextual or uh, mobile experience or ux agency in, in australia and sydney and he's not the first person in the last number of weeks that i'm seeing this parallel happening this this career arc emerging of they study something in university and then later on in their career that re-emerges that pattern re-emerges and that strength that something that we probably discounted it or swept under the carpet a little bit to to kind of wear the the designer cape for a number of years ben reason from live work he's one of the he's the, the last remaining founder of live work studied um fine art but was really interested um around sustainability and the understanding of the impact on the earth and stuff that was in the mid 90s and that's re-emerged into the future of live work now like he's, he's kind of tapped back into that former self if you want okay and hopefully i'm not doing ben a disservice there I want to ask you a little bit more around the project that we're going to be speaking a little bit more in in depth okay so your formative education was in law okay so you studied law um the power of language and being able to speak to people in their language is really really important okay and lived experience as we've mentioned is really really important how important was it that you had a level of competency when you went in to start that project, that you were a designer, but you were also had this in your back pocket that you were able to speak in a certain legalese, if you want, to help build trust. Is that something that you were aware of, or is that something that, um, you know, is just living mm. there? Yeah. Um, so I worked on the project with um, two other really fantastic designers, Wendy Fox and Bunny Graham, who are now at City of Melbourne. Um, and they, not, neither of them come from legal backgrounds. They both, you know, have a, a huge amount of experience um, yeah. as designers, but came from quite different backgrounds. And so I think um, there's a little bit of safety in in one of us being able to at least, at least appear like we kind of mm -hmm. at the get-go sort of knew what was going on and all that kind of stuff. So I think that the difference that it made, that I had that background, um, was... I could, uh, I don't know if it, if it was really necessary. I think that Wendy and Bonnie, for example, would have been totally fine if yeah. I hadn't been there at all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I think all that I was able to do was maybe just explain a few things a bit faster. Maybe I just fast forwarded a little bit of the, um, this is how the court system works. So this is kind of typical experiences that a lawyer might have. Um, and to be honest, those things weren't even things that I actually learned in law school. They were things that I had just picked up from knowing lots of lawyers. Okay. Um, because one of the th one of the insights that we had from the all of the research that we did, which is again, you know, relatable to what we're talking about, is um, that law school 
really anything about the court system. That's mm-hmm. quite a different yeah. thing. And the expectation is that you learn about that on the job. And so I had that same experience of I went to law school, people on our team, other people, you know, around kind of expected that I would know certain things, but have a subject on the court system and how all of the paperwork goes for submitting a case or any of that kind of stuff. So I was learning a lot as well doing this project. When the project came about, like, because we've, we've spoken about Paper Giant and a lot of the work that they, they tend to pick up and, and focus on is, you know, a lot of it's around the justice justice process, which I'm seeing. Can you remember what it was like at the start of the project when yourself, Wendy and Bonnie um, entered into the, the the conversations within the organization and also just the building because it was, it was pre-pandemic when this one kicked off? What did it look like and what did it feel like? Because I understand that you just joined Paper Giant as well. So you're going through the whole kind of formative process of building relationships with your team uh, team members and then you also had to go into a client okay so this piece is something that i'm really interested in in terms of the success outcomes from a project the first couple of days are really really important how you build trust what did you do at that time uh, and are you okay to talk about this because i'm aware some of it might be somewhat sensitive yeah um well i think that the thing that we were really um lucky with is that we did happen to start just a couple of weeks before the pandemic kind of became a thing that we needed to worry about and talk about and started to influence our day-to-day lives and so at Paper Giant we well I suppose I I heard about this I had only started the week that we also started this project but I think everybody was in the habit of kind of working on a rhythm of couple of days in the client's office, couple of days in the paper giant office. So every that habit was already within the way that we do consulting here. Mm-hmm. And so we fell into line with that as well and said, all right, well, it's in the first couple of weeks of the project, why don't we spend lots of extra time because we're just getting to know everybody. We want to observe the, um, the call center. We want to observe the registrars doing their work. We want to go and sit in one of the courtrooms and all that kind of stuff. And so we really wanted uh, we spent those first couple of weeks doing a lot of FaceTime in their office. And that was really interesting as well, because actually there was a bunch of other consultants who um, from other organizations who were actually working on adjacent pieces. Um, so the project, to zoom out a little bit or to provide a little mm-hmm. bit of a bigger picture, the project that we were working on, which was about improving the experience of going to court, was part of a much, much larger um, program of work that had heaps of different pieces um, and all of those pieces were being bitten off by other consultancies and other types of characters and so we had to align with all of these sort of visibility measures and reporting measures and governance mm. measures that they had in place um, yeah so I'm... when we were in the office sorry no no go ahead when you're in the office when we were in the office um we were sitting alongside all of the other consultants who were working on all of the other pieces. Okay. And that was really cool because we could see how other people were working. We could we could get insight into how their project was going to influence our project in a really um, casual, conversational way instead yeah. of needing to wait until they had finished reporting on that section and we would receive the report and then you know, it was just so, it was so easy and so great. We were just sitting next to each other and go, what are you guys working on? Oh, this is where we got to. Oh, we've got the same insight. Cool. Oh, okay. That's validating. 
that's kind of cool. In some experiences yeah. that I've had uh, and I've heard from others as well, when you work alongside other consultancies, there's, there tends to be a bit of a wall built around the the that whatever separate consultancies work and not being happy to share stuff. I know I did work alongside um, an agency and um, they were not happy with sharing the research at the same time I was doing research. And I was just like, why not? We're working on the same client, like, you know, like we're working in the same groups of people. Um, yeah, so that- I think what was different in our situation is that none of us were doing projects that were the same. So we had Deloitte, okay, who was so working on a workforce yeah. planning thing, yeah. okay, which is enough. adjacent, but different still. And there was another group who were working on um, redesigning something to do with the call centers. And so they were all yeah. quite different. Okay, so the first couple of days, um, you, well, was it the first week or two weeks, I think, in our notes here that you have was in the office and then somebody got the sniffles um in around china at that time and <laughs> that became covid um yeah. and I, I think a lot of us has kind of have blanked out months of 2020 due to the extreme trauma what was it like entering a new business a huge project because this is a, this was a really big project and um and being able to retain the likelihood of kicking goals when everything is moved online. Um, what was the experience like at that time working within the Supreme Court system within Victoria? Um, how did you handle the tooling and the sharing of data, especially around research? Because I know you did 60 interviews. Were all of those online and were some of them in person? Talk a little bit more around that whole kind of process because the the whole data sensitivity piece, something I've heard time and time again, was a real problem. Yeah, it was. Um, look, I don't need to say, I don't need to re-trigger anyone, but it was an unfathomably stressful time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just it was so crazy, and it spanned the move, but between us, um. Starting the starting the research and handing in the that kind of deliverable, I think it was about six weeks. That went from everything being totally fine to everybody complete. I think we were in lockdown by the end of those six weeks, so we spanned the like, wait, we have to make a COVID plan. What's that? You know, yeah. all the way to, um, you know, we're just living living Surviving. online and glued yeah. to our computers and just surviving and not sure how far Melbourne. you can go from your house yeah so, melbourne was, melbourne was like one of the worst hit cities on the planet in terms of the extent of the lockdowns folks i don't know yeah. it was months months and months um at home yeah, that cool? yeah the first the first lockdown that we had i don't even know if i'm remembering this correctly obviously i've blocked it all out of memory mm. but i think that the first one was maybe Three four months. weeks or six weeks three weeks or do you, yeah. is it three weeks no. i think no i think it was three months there was a no was the a, second one in 2020 yeah. was three months okay the first one was less than that i can't you know yeah. i can't remember yeah but it was i remember at the time feeling like this is insane insane how long it is and then the second one happened and i was like i can't believe we thought that was long that was like okay. a blink of an eyelid compared to what's happened now yeah um, so it was incredibly stressful, um, but it's it's such a credit to the team, not just um, 
Wendy, Bonnie and our founder, Ruben, who we were also working really closely with, who, you know, we all supported each other really well and figured out how to keep going. Um, but also the team that we had at, at the Supreme Court were able to figure, figure out how to move court online, which was yeah. they had said that they can't do, you know, for such a long time and then they'd figured it out in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. You know, they managed to... to to do all of that as well as, you know, keep everything to heal on. They're really, really amazing people um, and very good at sort of reacting uh, to the, the crisis at hand. So we've managed to um, keep the project going without really skipping, as you know, too much of a step. Absolutely. So let's talk about the research. I mentioned there you did 60 interviews, which um, mm. quite a lot. But those, <laughs> for anyone, that's a lot. I suppose you split it across three people, but still it's a lot of data to synthesize to sort of distill some sort of actionable insights off the back of it. But you um, you boiled them down into four archetypes, um, I can see in my notes here. Are you okay to talk about the archetypes and, and um, how you got to that point? Um, because I know that there's there's a couple of really fantastic names that you've given them, like uh, the Constellation Seeker. And the Constellation Seeker was the one that made me burst out laughing in, in the nicest possible way when I <laughs> when I saw this before Christmas, you know, as I'm drinking my coffee in the morning. I was like, because the Constellation Seeker is the one that I resonated the most with whenever I was working in that process, because it's hard. And an awful lot of the people that work within the justice system permanently that tends to be the emotion that I saw quite a lot. It's the whole kind of like, oh, didn't get that, didn't work, or I had problems with this. Maybe talk to that a little bit more if you're okay to do that, Roya, please. Yeah. So it was such an interesting piece of research. Mm. I wish I could tell you all of the all of the details about it. It was it was really fascinating to understand all these different kinds of characters that go to court um, and something yeah. that stood out from the very first, you know, conversation and was a theme throughout the whole thing was, um, so maybe a quick sort of piece of context is that the people that we were working with at the Supreme Court, it's not the judges and the judges associates and that those kinds of um, people, it's this part of the court, which is called the registry. And the registry essentially is kind of like the concierge for the court system. So their job is to help anybody who wants to go to court get organized, get all of their paperwork together so that they can have a successful day in court with the judge and the judge's associates. Um, we were talking to a lot of these people who worked at the registry saying, who calls you, who emails you, who's coming in, who do you need to help? Um, and their focus was always about these this certain type of person who takes up all of their time Mm. Um, who's called the self-represented litigant. I'm sure some of the listeners yep. are familiar with that phrase. The self-represented litigants are people who, it's pretty much in the name, they don't have a lawyer, they're turning up by themselves. There's heaps of reasons why people would do that. One of them is that funding for pro bono legal work, for legal aid, all that kind of stuff is massively reduced. So a lot of people who once upon a time could have gotten a lawyer for free, just can't now. There's not enough of that mm. still happening. So they're forced to represent themselves. There's another class of persons who choose to represent themselves. Mm. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why people do that. Sometimes it's because they come from a legal background. Sometimes it's because they you know, believe that 
you shouldn't have to have a lawyer to go to the you know, the highest court in the state. It's all kinds of reasons why somebody might choose to represent themselves. Yeah. Um, but people often talk about these self-represented, sorry, members of the registry often talk about self-represented litigants in a very... Um, Disparaging way. Disparaging. Nicest way to say. Thank you. That was a good, good (laughs) word. Um, I was just remembering sort of the look on people's faces when they talk about it. It's sort of a bit tired. They have kind of a laugh on their lips. They've got. They have stories about these guys. There was this one person that everybody kept talking about. I can't remember his. um, Can't remember his name. But everyone went, oh, just for the sake of argument, I'll call him. You know, John. They went, oh, John. Everybody knows John. You know, he's been at the court. For, for for decades he's been coming here for such a long time he's his case never ends he just appeals and appeals and appeals and he keeps going um and they all kind of talked about him in this sort of funny like very familiar way they had all come across him at some point it was almost this sort of like he's a friend of the office he's this guy who's always around and what was so funny was that they had described what he looks like and I was on the steps of the court one day and I saw him um, he was, you know, pretty distinctive. He had a folder in his arms um, and he was on the steps chatting to a security guard and the security guard had said, hey, John, I haven't seen you around in a while. And John said, oh, um, I just had to take a holiday. You know, I had to get away from all of this. And I remember thinking for John, this is a job. He, mm. this is so much of a full-time occupation for him that he had to take a holiday from it and now can come back to it refresh to keep going. So some of these people, not all of them, but some of yeah. them, they, they are really there a lot, very yeah. familiar to the registry. <clears throat> they are taking up a lot of um, a lot of space in the, in that system. Um, and so what we heard a lot of from the registry people is saying we can't help we can't help everybody because some people need so much more yeah. of our time, either because their case is very complicated or because they're, um, they just kind of don't know what they're doing, all of this kind of stuff. So we're trying to answer this question of how can we make sure that the people who are going to court are having a positive experience, that the registry is supported to help sure. as many people well as they can. Mm-hmm. How can we use digital to help make some of these processes smoother? Um, you know, something that we were talking about the other day is that a really key part of a democratic society is that the backlog mm-hmm. in co- the court is low. And yeah. so making sure that people, that there's a really sort of efficient process for making sure that cases are getting to the judges in a timely manner um, and being resolved is really, really important. And what we, you know, we're trying to help the registry do is optimize all of these different pathways to make sure that that backlog yeah. can stay really low. One of the pieces that I I really enjoyed about this um this case study was that you didn't throw technology at the problem okay now what tends to be um and i don't want to point the fingers at any consultancy here but whenever the consultancies go in they do work um they tend to be okay well we can actually improve the efficiency here by pushing people online to complete a form uh reduce the overhead the purpose of technology is to to try and, and enable a more of a human connection. Okay. It's not there to replace it. Uh, and that's my perspective. And what I really enjoyed hearing here was you were improving the backstage performance. Okay. You're improving the, 
the bits that kind of drain the resources, both from a technical and a process and a, and a people perspective as well, to enable a more of a humane service to be delivered. How was that um, vision shared across all the other consultancies that were working alongside Paper Giant at the time? Or is that something that Paper Giant um, somewhat stood up and said, well, actually, this is this is our perspective. This is our take on that. And if so, how was it received? Mm. Um, I think we didn't do so much of the backstage stuff. Our solutions were still quite front stage because we had identified that a lot of the mm. challenge um, was actually that information was not being delivered. Information that was useful was not being delivered to people right. in the way that it needed to be. And so a lot of the angle was yeah. around delivery of information. Um, the website's IA and you know all of this kind of stuff is a yeah. big part of that story. I think another point that's worth making, just what you were saying about digital, is that um, one thing that I I really love about Paper Giant and and one of the one of the things that I appreciate the most when we're going through you know the pitching mm. process or talking to different clients is that we are very much platform agnostic we're not we don't employ developers and that is specifically so that we are not married to pitching those kinds of solutions to people we're very co-design focused and we always want to give ourselves the opportunity to be led by the wisdom of the people that we are talking to and asking to design those solutions so that if they come back and say you know what you actually just need a sign on the wall then we can just do that and not be worried that half of our staff is sitting there without anything to do because we've got a bunch of, you know, yeah. back-end developers. Um, so I think that's a, a really key factor in this project was that we started it having absolutely no idea what was going to come out the other end. Um, yeah. We were fully prepared for maybe we were going to need to paint arrows on the floor. Maybe there was going to be a wayfinding yeah. within the courts and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a coincidence that in the end, um, co-design advisory did see that digital was going to be, the, the website was going to be the most suitable way to deliver mm. um, some of the things that they talked about. But we were fully prepared for it to not yeah. and that's go something, that way. But I, I love that because, um, and I was kind of, smiling there a few seconds ago because uh i would have loved that to have been the outcome that we just need to put a poster on the wall or put an arrow on on, on the ground and see how that stacks up alongside some of the other major consultancies because there tends to be this whole kind of encouragement of like okay well we need to sort of um f- follow through on, on giving a, a massive piece of uh you know I'm doing air quotes value here in terms of it might be a brand new app or something that will that'll lead to more work and it has this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where they kind of find themselves living in there for 10 years building the client I don't hear that coming back here in this instance it was very much and that's not to blow smoke but it's really important that 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 is grounded here in the principles of of actually the founders as well it's not about remaining present in in the client's offices for a long period of time where you can actually bill extensively Mm. some of the ideas that we'd even talked about were so analog we had even imagined Mm. there are these people who want to tell their stories is there a 
somebody who sits in a court and listens to stories, who collects those stories, who does some kind of um, insight analysis, some kind of some kind of project that makes collecting those stories feel meaningful. And you actually, t- if somebody did that work, that would be a huge burden off of the shoulders of the registry who sit and yeah. often are less spending hours listening to people tell their story that has nothing yeah. to do with the work that the registry is actually able to help people do. So we gave ourselves permission to really think broadly and think big yeah. about what are all of the possible things that could help take pressure off of the registry so they can put their energy with the people who have sort of specialist situations that need the most help and um, mm. and make a more frictionless, smooth experience for those who whose needs are a bit less. Really nice. Um, in terms of the the output of the project, and I, I hate saying output, but we know the outcome was targeted towards access of justice. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what was the the final piece that you left the Supreme Court with? What what did that look like? So what it ended up looking like is we was that we handed over was there was these um, archetypes. Hmm. So they have ended up becoming a part of their training for all new registry members. Um, so that was kind of one very practical, yeah, you know, yeah, use use of that work. Um, and the other key piece was that there was some. Um, so they were doing a, a separate project that was really significant. It was about um, redesigning the website, and so. As the co-design group began sort of developing their ideas and that kind of thing, we understood that we would have the opportunity to actually feed into this other huge piece of work that was happening. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what was uh, handed over in the end were information that the the co-design advisory had sort of very emphatically said, this is what I needed and this is what I couldn't find and it would have just made everything so much better. Um, so one of them for example sorry hmm. no go ahead can you give us an example <laughs> and then you're about to tell us so yeah, yeah. so you know sometimes sometimes these things sound simple um yeah. but that's sometimes what's required you know <laughs> sometimes yeah. you have to do a lot of work to figure out the simple thing so one of them was um was so one of the pro- one of the key problems is that there's a lot of anxiety of people who going who go to court, um, and that anxiety comes from just unfamiliarity. Yeah. And so this was a really really big learning for the registry that lawyers even would be unfamiliar with how things happen at court. And there's lots of reasons for that. If you don't go to court, if you only go to court once every ten years, everything changes. The building changes. The hallways change. Um, yeah. So. Even lawyers, young lawyers who have never done it before, self-represented litigants, there's lots and lots of reasons why people get a lot of anxiety about going to court. And this came through so heavily in the research was people just talking about, you know, more than butterflies in their stomach, the elephants in their stomach, feeling nauseous, um, just hating every single day, losing weight, their hair falling out, all of this kind of stuff is very, very um, just, you know, huge, huge um, personal um consequences of of going through that much stress and so when they talked about the things when they talked about the experience of going to court what it felt like not not where do you stand what do you wear how do you bring all of the 
pay for, I feel like an idiot for having a suitcase, but then you get there and see that's what everybody else did. We went, this is actually quite simple stuff. If you have yeah. a video series that explains, this is the layout of a courtroom. This is where this person stands. This is where that person stands. Everybody has to stand up at this time and not at that time. And except, you know, all this kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, it would make people feel much more comfortable to turn up on that day and not want to, you know, throw up their lunch before they go. Um, and so one of the, the recommendations was actually to invest in creating a video series that was able to cross some cultural boundaries. So you would be able to provide in different languages and that kind of thing yep. um, and really use, you know, a visual storytelling mechanism um, rather than a PDF hidden yeah. on your website to just explain some of this really simple evergreen stuff about going to court, um, which entrance you should go in. The fact that you're going to have to go through security and being patted down is a reality that might happen. Yeah. All of this stuff um, were things that our co-design group, they were terrified yeah. of it um, and yeah. it made going really scary. So no, that was one suggestion. Yeah. Knowing who's who in the zoo is something that I kept on hearing time and time again like who is the person that has got the, the the ability to make the decision was um you know just stuff like that like you know um was relatively kind of well known amongst people who live within the system but people who are unfamiliar with it it was really kind of like foreign to them um and it's funny that you ended up with that as the uh, the outcome because when i was working in the project around vulnerability that was one of my key recommendations was a video series that was somewhat childlike because i was targeting um children primarily um as opposed yeah. to just adult 1980s retro videos that have been pulled across from the uk yeah. so, which aren't relevant you know that's like relevant the, um, yeah. yeah the they they do have to be made specifically i think for the courts because so much mm. can be yeah, unfamiliar across countries changed. and even across regional changes. metro. But as the policy changes, the, the the content needs to change as well, and then the cost of production for for producing those videos was uh, was massive. So you know, scripting and all that kind of stuff, and it was just like, wow, okay, how do we do this? And it's it's almost you need to become a content provider as well when you're delivering yeah. service, and having that yeah. skill set amongst government was quite alien to a lot of a lot of them that I was speaking to at that time. Mm. It was oh, yeah. such an interesting one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, it can feel, the thing that's so interesting about the video thing is that the possible impact is so significant. What was that? The possible oh. impact is so significant because a lot of these, the, the stress that people experience is so extremely heightened. Going to the Supreme Court of a state is a once in a lifetime experience for a lot of people. And for many people, it's the worst experience of their life is going to do it. And they, the, the anxiety and the stress emanates and it impacts everybody that they're coming in contact with. So the effect of reducing that stress and reducing that anxiety has such a disproportionate impact on everybody's experience of being in that place. Um, that it, you know, something as simple as making a video that explains where you stand, the impact of it really can't be discounted. 
Absolutely. No one wants to be made feel like they're they're making mistakes and it's really empowering those behaviors to 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 shine through on the day um so it's you know it, it sounds like it's it's a very logical outcome but it sometimes that's that's kind of what the research and that's what the the co-design um the people who were part of the process that was what was one of their suggestions yeah correct? i think it's like giving people confidence it gives you confidence when you've gone through a process like this it means that the the courts and whoever can go and really throw the full weight of their um you know of their position or their money behind it because they know that the idea came about in a defendable logical way we're we're coming towards the end of the episode here um i want to thank you for your time and your energy and your vulnerability and answering some of the questions that that i presented thanks for having me no, no, it was it was absolutely fantastic to to speak with you, and as I said, like you know, I'm a big fan of of the work that Paper Giant do specifically because it's where I see design being the most effective, and that's where um, my love from it comes. So, um, big thank big you. shout out to the team there at Paper Giant as well. If people want to reach out well, to you, you. Um, I'll put a link to this um, the case study on the Paper Giant website because I know people might want to follow along as they're listening to this episode. Um, but if there's anything else that you want to include in the show notes, just let me know and I'll drop it into the show notes for you for people to listen and to follow along with. But if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? What what are the best way for people to to get in touch with with Roya? Yeah, LinkedIn is good. I also have um my web like my personal website. There's an ah. email address there, so you can just go to royaalmaazadi.com. Nice. Um, so there's an email address there. LinkedIn is fine, but you know if there's anybody who's working in the justice um or sort of court related world and wants to sort of hear more about this i'd be really more than happy to share it yeah internationally as well because i know there's some fantastic work have you have you connected with the design justice network in the u.s as well i haven't yeah they're a great now yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) like they're they're a great one Uh, they do great work as well around change makers roy thanks so much for your time thanks so much jerry there you go folks i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more why not visit thisishatecd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there thanks again for listening